1: As it marks the Lunar New Year and the opening of the Winter Olympics in Beijing, China should have plenty of reasons to celebrate. But far from roaring its way into the year of the tiger, the Chinese economy is slowing, and multiple threats loom over the prosperity of 2022. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Mike Bird, the Asia Business and Finance Editor at The Economist, and this week we're weighing up the biggest challenges facing the Chinese economy. Hyperinfectious variants are testing the resolve of China's zero-COVID strategy – and sharpening the divide between East and West.
2: A lot of the international observers have been emphasising global supply chains, but I think the much more immediate impact is on consumption within China.
1: A sharp slowdown in the property sector threatens one of the primary engines of Chinese economic growth.
3: I don't think China's economy can afford a sudden drop in housing prices, at least for now.
1: And crackdowns in the name of common prosperity are disrupting some of the country's most dynamic industries.
0: This tech crackdown as kind of encompassing the whole spectrum of inequality in different stages of the economy.
1: For most of the pandemic, compared to the rest of the world, the Chinese economy has looked remarkably healthy. While other countries have faced wave after wave of COVID-19, China has recorded fewer confirmed cases than the UK, with just a 20th of the Chinese population, counted in a single day yesterday, February the 1st. Chinese exports have been booming as Western consumers spend their stimulus cash on its goods. Its currency has strengthened and the rest of the world could only look on in envy as China notched up more than 8% GDP growth in 2021. But the country is not going to be able to repeat the same trick. The IMF has just cut its forecast for this year to 4.8% growth, below the government's 5% target. And in Xi Jinping's 10th year in office, China has some serious problems to confront. To take us through all of this, I am joined by our China Economics editor and fellow Hong Konger, Simon Cox. Simon, Happy New Year. Gong Hei Fat Choi.
2: Uh, how
1: are you? I'm, I'm good. How have you been uh, spending the New Year?
2: Well, I actually had some uh, pineapple cake, which I think is more of a Taiwanese delicacy than a Hong Kong one, but probably, you know, preferable to some of your alternatives. Uh, it was nice. Uh, I was spending the time with some some friends.
1: Lovely. I haven't had pineapple cake in a long time. I missed that from trips to Taiwan. No no turnip cake for you this year.
2: Uh, not yet, no.
1: I've got that to look forward to still. Has it felt like much of a holiday for you as the schools are now shut in Hong Kong again?
2: Yes, that's been uh, a problem and um, that's been the biggest uh, sort of personal impact of the zero Covid strategy that Hong Kong has been pursuing, uh, its attempt to remain aligned with with the mainland. Um, my favourite index of uh, zero Covid compliance in Hong Kong is, is playgrounds because the playgrounds were all taped up also. Um, And in the past, that tape has been respected and observed, but I notice in this wave, the kids seem to have given up on zero COVID, even if the government hasn't, and they've been tearing down the tape and, and playing anyway.
1: So to pivot to what's going on in the mainland a little bit, traditionally, obviously, people go back to, to family villages and small towns for the spring festival and Lunar New Year celebrations. Uh, this might be the only time of the year that a lot of migrant workers are able to do that. This is the third new year that that hasn't really been possible for a large number of people. What's the sort of economic impact of maintaining COVID zero during festival time?
2: Yeah, I think that's important because you know, a lot of the international observers have been emphasising the effect on global supply chains, which I'm sure we'll discuss in a minute. But I think the much more immediate impact is on consumption within China. Services, restaurants, internal tourism and internal travel. Now, I think the restrictions this time are, are less tight than they have been in past years. But even so, uh, I think we're expecting many fewer than the normal number of trips during this festival uh, so that will obviously have a slightly depressing effect on on that sector of the economy, quite apart from the impact it'll have on people's morale for people who don't get a break at any other time of the year.
1: And one of the interesting things I keep thinking back to is, is sort of uh, back towards the beginning of the pandemic, when it became clear that Chinese tourists essentially wouldn't be leaving China in large part for, a, for some time ahead. And I think there was some sort of expectation at the beginning that that might lead to more consumer spending being conducted domestically. Uh, if people can't fly off to Australia or Bali or, or Seoul, then they might spend more money at home. And I think in the, in the aggregate, I sort of haven't seen that effect coming through. Or to the extent that it's coming through, it doesn't seem to be able to offset the, the general trend of, of more depressed consumption and and in terms of the sort of impact on those um export supply chains the sort of rolling lockdowns of, of various cities how has that been affecting things
2: see it's not been affecting them that much yet it's more a fear than an actuality at the moment uh, we saw obviously a very harsh lockdown in xi'an which is you know a central city it's not all that important to the sort of export hubs although there is a very important samsung factory there that was somewhat affected Uh, We've seen uh, mandatory testing in Tianjin, which is a more prosperous city uh, close to Beijing. And there, that mandatory testing moderately affected Volkswagen, uh, Toyota, I believe. Uh, And I guess the big worry is if an outbreak gets out of hand in an important export city and you have the sort of restrictions we saw in Xi'an on a place like Shenzhen, then what will the impact be? In a previous wave, uh, the port of Ningbo, which is quite important, was uh, shut down partly because of a single case. Uh, and that did have uh, an appreciable effect on supply times uh, across the world. But quite frankly, global supply chains have got so many other problems right now. The uh, blips in China are probably quite small in the big scheme of things.
1: I think from outside of China, and particularly in the West, you get a lot of people being relatively critical of, of zero cover policies and looking at them pretty skeptically. That isn't entirely the case within China. Um, what do you think of the sort of levels of public support for the for the policy at the moment?
2: Well, I think you know China can still make a, a reasonable case for maintaining uh, this policy. I mean, obviously, it doesn't have the levels of natural immunity countries in the West have acquired through their past mistakes. It still, I think, needs a more effective vaccine, and it might also be waiting for a future variant that will be even less severe. Uh, than Omicron. So there's still some sort of benefit to holding the fort. And you know even if the population uh, is tiring of zero COVID, there's no real sign uh, that the government has. And so they're probably going to throw everything they can at it if the Omicron outbreak worsens. Yeah, absolutely. So I think clearly within China that the feeling is that the balance between the costs and benefits may be deteriorating, but not so much that they're willing to abandon the policy just yet. But it's clear that you know, they could very much have done without the Omicron variant right now. It's not as if the economy doesn't have other problems to deal with. Uh, in particular, this sharp slowdown in property is causing a great deal of concern.
1: So that brings us very nicely to the other massive damage control operation that the Chinese leadership is currently trying to manage. And to our colleague Don Wineland, China business and finance editor, who's been following this slow motion catastrophe from the very beginning.
4: Seen from the air, the island looks like a five-petaled orchid nestled in the curve of the bay. On either side, two more artificial islands unfurl like breaking waves. This is the Ocean Flower Island, complete with theme parks, hot springs, and thousands of holiday homes. Its construction has turned this corner of tropical Hainan province, known as the Hawaii of China, into something more resembling Dubai. But now the shadow of the wrecking ball looms over the resort. In January, local authorities ordered the demolition of 39 all-but-finished tower blocks on Ocean Flower Island. Residents of the nearby holiday compounds lamented the waste of money and effort. The developer has appealed the decision, but this legal challenge is among the least of its worries. Because the company behind the project is Evergrande, one of China's largest and the world's most indebted property developers. The scale, speed, and longevity of China's 30-year property boom are all mind-boggling. From its impact on everything from concrete to curtains, property is responsible for about a quarter of China's GDP. One analyst called it the most important sector in the universe. China is a nation of savers, and as incomes have risen, more than three-quarters of the country's wealth has been sunk into housing. Before the pandemic, each year, work started on more than five times as many homes— as America and Europe combined. And as house prices soared, Chinese investors came to assume that property was a one-way bet. Meanwhile, for local authorities, sales of land to developers had become a vital revenue stream. When the rules governing how they could raise money were overhauled in the 1990s, selling land became one of the few things they could do to fund infrastructure spending. This has bound economic growth tightly to the property boom. As a result, home buyers and developers alike have come to consider the housing market too important to fail. Evergrande was founded in the mid-1990s just as that momentum was gathering pace. Its founder, Hui Kai Yan, rose from rural obscurity to vie with Jack Ma, founder of Alibaba, for the title of China's richest man, and trumpeted the power of private enterprise to improve the lives of ordinary people. But for President Xi Jinping, the China being built by companies like Evergrande was a far cry from his vision of common prosperity for all. While millions of apartments stood empty, large Chinese cities were fast becoming some of the least affordable places in the world. And in 2017, at the 19th National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party, Xi made his feelings clear. Housing is for living in, not for speculation, he said promising to make both renting and buying more affordable.
3: But the debt-fueled
4: building and buying frenzy continued. Evergrande has accumulated some $300 billion of liabilities. Two thirds of that is reckoned to be cash consumers have paid for homes that have yet to be finished. So over the past 18 months, the central government has stepped in with dramatic effect. It has laid down what it calls the three red lines to greatly limit developers' debt and make it harder for them to raise money. The rules have pushed companies once thought too big to fail right to the brink. As Evergrande struggled to pay its debts, investors protested at its offices, demanding their money back, some of them in tears. In September, the company missed its first interest payment on offshore bonds. The ratings agency, Fitch, officially declared it to be in default in December. And on January 26th, Evergrande announced it aims to have a restructuring proposal in place within six months. The liquidity crisis now extends far beyond Evergrande. New home prices have fallen for four straight months. Several of Evergrande's peers have missed international bond payments. Ahead of earnings season, its suppliers are starting to issue profit warnings. Much rests on what the government does next. It may have been right to tame the wildest excesses of a runaway housing market, but property has been a pillar Of the Chinese economy for much of the past three decades. The country's about to find out what happens when that pillar starts to crumble.
1: So Simon, what do you think the government's options are now? Can they decouple growth from housing in the way that I think they're intending to? So yeah, the question
2: is, can they do that without relaxing some of these curbs on property? And I think they're beginning to conclude that uh, stimulating the rest of the economy won't be quite enough and that they need to stabilise sentiment in the property market too. Uh, We saw some guidance to banks that they could maintain loans to developers, they just couldn't massively increase their exposure. We've seen some uh, discussion about making it easier for developers to access the money they've got from home buyers for flats they haven't built yet. Uh, There's also some suggestion that Maybe the red lines will be enforced a little less zealously. So there are these signs that they may relax uh, the property curbs. The problem then, of course, is that you just go through this cycle all over again. I mean, after all, this isn't the first time we've been here. There have been many property cycles, lots of attempts to, to curb speculation. Someone who's been watching this particularly closely is Juning, a professor at the Shanghai Advanced Institute of Finance, and at Tsinghua University, uh, five years ago, he wrote a book called China's Guaranteed Bubble. And since then, he's watched a lot of his predictions come true. I asked him if anything had taken him by surprise about the recent ramping up of the government's curbs on property.
3: I am a little bit surprised by two things. One is, I think the the so-called compositional fallacy—how different the policies from different areas are now coupling up with each other to make the impact really strong for both the home buyers and for the developers. For example, uh, there was a, a curve policy on who is eligible to buy a house. And also the cycle uh, it takes to uh, take out a bank loan for a mortgage uh, has become much stronger, which is making it much harder for the home buyers. And then there's a policy on the real estate developers on which type of companies are allowed to borrow from the banks. So all those policies, not a single one extremely tough or difficult, but if you put all those policies together, I think that is causing somewhat unexpected consequences. But even with such strong policy, I think a very interesting question is whether that has changed people's expectations and beliefs. So people have been through this before, maybe not as tough as in the past six months. But we have been going through five different uh, curbing cycles in the past decade or so. So more and more people believe that those curbing policies are going to eventually go away. And after the policy goes away, there will be another very big rebound in housing prices. So I don't think the policy is tough enough in the sense that it has already altered the expectation or the beliefs in the guarantee embedded in the housing sector by the government.
2: It does strike me that some of them seem to be slightly at odds with each other. So, for example, if you're worried that house prices in China are too high, you might ask, well, why are you making it more difficult for developers to build houses? Because obviously increasing supply would bring prices down, all else equal. On the other hand, if you're worried about being too highly leveraged, it seems odd that you would make it difficult for home buyers to purchase homes because that makes it harder for developers to pay down their debts uh, if their revenues are constrained. And then conversely, if you're worried about household debt and household exposure to the property market, then maybe what you want to be doing is propping prices up, not not bringing them down.
3: I do agree with you. I think some of the objectives of the policy may not be very well aligned with each other. I think there are probably two major reasons why this is the case. The first thing is I think there are different objectives. Part of the policy is trying to prevent systematic financial risks. Part of that is trying to promote common prosperity and trying to enhance the standard of living. And part of that is trying to boost consumption of household and trying to keep the household level of debt at a reasonable range. So I think you're absolutely right in the way of uh, sometimes trying to achieve one of the goals may actually defeat the purpose of trying to achieve another. But we have another issue, which is, do you want to solve the problem now, or do you want to solve the problem for five years down the road? Because if all the speculative demand is gone, now we might have a sudden slump in the demand, hence the housing prices in the economy. And I don't think China's economy can afford a sudden drop in housing prices, at least for now.
2: Suppose the strategy is basically this, by intention or not, that they'll get tough on property when the rest of the economy is doing well, and they'll ease up on property when the rest of the economy is weak. Do you think that's a sustainable, feasible perhaps even a smart approach to this?
3: I I do not. I actually have been a strong advocate for what either we don't impose those curbing policy, or if we do impose those curbing policy, we should stick to them. I think what's being lost in that is the expectation. People are no longer buying in the curbing policy because they have failed so many times in the past. So I think that is a confusing expectation or regime which the market can no longer fully trust. I think what's more important is, I think, from the very bottom up, to sort out the mechanism which is necessary to have the right attitude towards the housing market in in that regard. I think nobody should expect the housing prices to jump 50% in a year, which has been the case in China for quite a few years over the past two decades. I think, well, if you really want to uh, drive away speculation, exercising property tax, or something like a stamp tax would be very effective. But the very fact that China has not rolled out those taxes, I think it's already signaling that I think the government is still quite supportive and tolerant with the housing sector.
2: Do you think that it's possible for China to keep growth stable uh, without relaxing property curbs?
3: Well, I I think it certainly is possible. I just don't think it would be very easy So in terms of its size and its complexity, there's really no easy alternative to housing in its ability to boost China's economy going forward. Uh, That being said, I think what's more important is still expectation. Government has to make a clear stance about, well, what is the ideal housing market in its mind in the long run. I think that's one thing. The second is, I think we have to balance the growth and the prevention of systematic financial risks. And I think both, for both things, uh, the longer we drag the process, uh, the more difficult it will be to engineer a soft lending or a gradual deflation of the housing prices. So I, I, I keep urging the government to act more quickly and more decisively on having a clear expectation and the policy communicated to the market. Those are
1: some really interesting points there. It makes me think about Japan's bubble in the late 1980s and the subsequent sort of economic and financial effects that drifted way into the late 1990s and early 2000s. Now, obviously, you have the the immediate effects of a decline in real estate activity and a decline in construction these things you that you can you can straight away measure in gdp you'll see them uh, in the first year that you begin this sort of campaign against the real estate sector and then there are other effects that you might not see for a long time so in japan's case that was a sort of serious problem for for banks for a lot of financing companies Because their sort of asset quality deteriorated over a matter of a a decade or even longer. I mean, how do you see the these sort of issues here, Simon, in terms of the effect on the financial sector, whether you might see deeper effects going on for a longer period of time if this sort of campaign against the real estate sector continues?
2: Yeah, it reminds me a little bit, there was a nice paper by Adam Posen that said, you know, it takes more than a bubble. To become like Japan. So yes, you need the the property bubble and burst, but then you also need financial dislocation and distress. And then on top of that, you also need a government or macroeconomic authorities that are incapable or unwilling to revive growth, because perhaps they're caught in a liquidity trap. Uh, And I always think that's a useful framework for looking at China, because it certainly does have these asset bubbles that can be quite spectacular. Um, I think on the whole, though, um, the other two stages of it will play out differently. Will the government be able to stimulate the economy if necessary to revive growth, to revive spending? That's something that China's actually really very good at, uh, at least in the past. So then, you know, the financial sector would that become dislocated and distressed? Uh, the banks are reasonably well capitalized. They seem reasonably confident that they can cope with a property slowdown. And of course, the government's going to be extremely quick to recapitalize them if necessary. And you know, the big difference with Japan is that um, the government owns most of these banks. So the doubts about their capital basis doesn't really apply in the same way. You know, whatever you might think about China's financial system, it might be uh, horribly inefficient. It might make the wrong loans to the wrong people, but it certainly makes enough loans. Uh, so the idea that it will go through this sort of prolonged deleveraging process, crimping growth in the rest of the economy seems to me unlikely.
1: And what about the rest of the world? Because we think a lot about real estate crises. And I think for people who are mostly interested in, in Western finance or mostly knowledgeable about Western finance, they often think back to 2008 um, issues in the US housing market becoming a massive deal globally. And what do you think about the sort of international spillovers? I know the IMF last week was, was talking about some of these issues.
2: Yeah, so uh, clearly it's a big deal for anyone trying to export iron ore, you know, to keep uh, steel going, to keep the construction going. Uh, It's a massive deal. And we've already seen, you know, metal prices uh, doing all sorts of interesting things. Then, you know, do you think there would be a sort of financial spillovers? Well, it used to be that, you know, distress in China stayed in China. Uh, That changed a little bit in 2015, where the big stock market burst and the devaluation of the yuan actually had a global effect. So it's, it's an open question about whether that would... Uh, be repeated at this time, I think you'd have to have a sufficiently sharp slowdown in China's growth that questions began to be asked about the currency. Uh, But what's interesting about China's currency in, in the recent months is how strong it's been, not how weak. So I don't yet see the sort of financial spillovers that we had back in 2015.
1: Thank you very much, Simon. In a minute, we'll be talking about how efforts to control the pandemic and the property crisis are playing into Xi Jinping's broader push for common prosperity. But first, you know what's coming, and I've always wanted to do this bit. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Economist, you really should be. You'll get to read the wise words of Simon, Don, and all our brilliant colleagues every week. There's a special offer for Money Talks listeners at economist.com. 2022 is also President Xi Jinping's 10th year at the head of the Chinese Communist Party. The slogan that's come to define this phase of his leadership is common prosperity. It's a campaign to purge China of what he sees as its capitalist excesses, Simon there are quite a lot of parallels here with concerns in the west over inequality competition shoring up vulnerabilities in in areas like the semiconductor chip supply what do you think about the differences what does common prosperity actually mean in practice
2: yeah i think the difference is not why it's being pursued but but how it's been uh, quite a regulatory storm uh, it's not been particularly well previewed or introduced. It's been quite sudden, haphazard, difficult to predict. And there's not a great deal of institutional oversight of it. And um, these are points that I think have been very well made by uh, Angela Zhang, uh, one of the most interesting people uh, to talk about this. Uh, she's director of the Center for Chinese Law at Hong Kong University and the author of Chinese Antitrust Exceptionalism.
0: The Chinese regulation doesn't come with very strong institutional checks and balance. So that allows the agency to move very quickly, right? And as you see, you know, cases against Alibaba or against Meituan, both cases were completed within six months, uh, which will be unimaginable in other jurisdictions, right? Which could take years or even decades um, before parties can reach a resolution. The fact that uh, companies don't very rarely challenged agency in court, right? I mean, so um, these agencies are subject to less judicial oversight, enable them to, you know, achieve their policy objective very quickly.
2: I suppose one of the difficulties in understanding the uh, regulatory storm and common prosperity is just quite how broad it is. It seems as if the crackdown is happening in one sector after another. How do you explain that breadth?
0: So you're absolutely right. This crackdown is unprecedented in terms of scope and depth. You know, there are partly two reasons. First is that the tech sector has permeated in so many sectors of our daily life, right? I mean, ride-hailing, social media, e-commerce, you know, even tutoring business, they were all affected by this crackdown. And another reason has to do with the Common Perspective Initiative. If you think about the initiative largely as a proposal to combat income inequality, right? I mean, we see regulation is primarily to tackle the production stage of the economy. But you also see the policies come out um, in this round of the tech campaign that address the pre-production stage of the economy. For instance, I see the crackdown on the tutoring business, It's more like to kind of change the endowments with the individuals that are entering the labor force. And you also see those policies that address the post-production stage, like, you know, the tax policy, they have clamped down on tax evasions, particularly those, you know, live streaming celebrities, right? So we saw this tech crackdown as kind of encompassing the whole spectrum of, of activities that will combat inequality in different stages of the economy.
2: But you've also pointed out that regulation has actually been quite lax in the past for a lot of these companies. So so what explains this kind of uh, flip-flop, if you like, uh, between the kind of aggression you just described with few constraints uh, and the laxity we saw in the past?
0: So a lot of the tensions have been building up over the years. And it's not that the regulators were not aware of those problems. However, in the past, the Chinese government had put great emphasis on uh, innovation and entrepreneurship. I mean, in 2015, the State Council also uh, promulgated this Internet Plus initiative to encourage uh, more innovation and entrepreneurship in the tech sector. This kind of discouraged the regulators to take a very aggressive stance to address many of the problems. They would prefer to use a more lenient tool, uh, unfair competition law or e-commerce law, rather than antitrust law, which can, um, you know, subject these companies to billions of dollars of fine. Because of this overriding national economic agenda to promote innovation and entrepreneurship.
2: Uh, but does China not still want to promote innovation and entrepreneurship?
0: I think they st- still do. I mean, obviously, the, t- the tech uh, companies are still very important uh, for the whole uh, economy. However, um, as you probably know, that will go back to the Jack Ma's controversial speech and the whole tipping point of how it triggered the whole dramatic reversal of the regulatory crackdown. Because, I mean, what I saw Jack Ma's speech back in October 2020 is really the very direct trigger for the whole change of the the regulatory shift. Because since then, we see the balance was decisively tipped towards regulation. And so I cannot overstate the importance of that speech. And, And because that's really the watershed moment for Chinese regulations in tech.
2: That speech, of course, is when uh, Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, addressed a financial summit in Shanghai in October 2020, just before the giant fintech company Ant Financial uh, was about to go public. He was quite rude about China's financial regulators, saying that they had uh, too traditional a mindset. I think he described it as a pawnbroker's mindset. Now, obviously, there was an immediate reaction. Ant's IPO was promptly cancelled. The crackdown that followed has been so broad. Um, Do you really think that one speech played such a decisive role across the board?
0: Right. I think because in the past, regulation was very lax, partly because of the information transmission problem from the regulators to the top uh, policymakers. However, what the speech did is that it incentivized the regulators, particularly the financial regulators, to come out because... As you know, Jack's speech offended a lot of the senior financial regulators, directly you know, challenged the legitimacy of these regulators and the bureaucratic interests. It's a point where information got reported upstairs. Once you receive clear signal from upstairs as a bureaucrat in China, then you would try very hard to demonstrate your loyalty to the top leadership and to take aggressive stance to address the problems.
1: Simon, there's this sort of duality going on here. On the one hand, the government in Beijing wants to turn the country into a sort of scientific and technological superpower. At the same time, it's pursuing this sort of crackdown against the more consumer focused tech sector. Is promoting innovation compatible with the crackdown that's going on at the moment?
2: Yeah, so I think it's an incoherent policy. I mean, some people say that they're cracking down on consumer facing tech in order to promote deep tech or hard tech, the things mm. that, you know, you might be concerned with if you wanted advanced manufacturing or you were particularly concerned about national self-reliance. But I think the, the policies are at odds. Uh, I mean, after all, we've seen in the West, lots of companies that start out as consumer-facing, I mean, you think of Amazon going into e-commerce, have become, you know, ubiquitous in things like cloud computing, which is clearly more of a form of deep tech. Or think of you know, Elon Musk going from PayPal to rocket ships. So I don't think it's necessary to you know, quash the ambitions of your e commerce sector in order to promote your chip manufacturing. That still, you know, leaves open whether the government thinks it's necessary. I mean, I suppose there are a, a finite number of STEM engineers, but it seems to me that it's a lot easier to promote employment in sectors that you particularly want to uh, encourage by making it more attractive to go into those industries, rather than making it less attractive to go into already successful companies.
1: Yeah, and I, I wonder what the effect is in terms of someone setting out to perhaps make a tech company, uh, a would-be innovator, so less the sort of engineer, more the sort of the entrepreneur who doesn't know what the government's attitude towards his sector is going to be like in in 10 years or five years.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think quite apart from whether you think these policies are good or bad, they just created a lot of uncertainty. When you're looking at big economic aggregates, particular regulatory actions really show up very clearly in those numbers. I think what's more concerning is just the long-term trajectory of China's growth. Uh, if entrepreneurs are indeed inhibited by this, then presumably it will begin to have some effect on productivity growth over the long term. You know, you may want to do what the government wants. You may be uh, the sort of entrepreneur who wants to stay on the right side of the government's industrial policy, but that policy keeps changing. So what do you do? Well, perhaps you just uh, limit your ambitions. Absolutely.
1: So looking at the immediate threats to growth through the near term sort of 2022, what tools does the government have at its disposal? Because one of the sort of repeated complaints about previous rounds of of Chinese stimulus is that it's fed precisely the things that the government is now trying to avoid straight into the real estate sector, that it's really sent prices booming and sent real estate activity growing. Um, Can the government revive growth? Can it reach its own growth targets without reviving precisely the sort of speculation that they're campaigning against? See, I think
2: it can. I I may be in a minority there, but I think there are smarter forms of stimulus. I mean, for one thing, yes, uh, there's some infrastructure they probably could usefully spend more money on. You sometimes hear them talking about new infrastructure in sectors like 5G or green infrastructure, where clearly there's still tremendous scope for spending. So they'll do a lot of that. That's fairly traditional. Uh, What they want to avoid, as you mentioned, is a big explosion of indiscriminate credit. Uh, And so although they have eased monetary policy a little bit, uh, it's still been quite modest. But on top of that, they could increase social spending more ambitiously, Or they could just give straightforward consumption subsidies, perhaps time-limited vouchers, even e-vouchers, distributed to everybody. So not directed government spending, but just encouraging consumers themselves to decide what they want to spend things on. All of that would help to support growth uh, without fueling the kind of speculation you described.
1: So I think this idea of doing a sort of smarter stimulus, engaging in that, it it sort of strikes at how I've been feeling for for much of the last year, which is that you've seen the Chinese government pursue these these grand campaigns against various sorts of excess or or to try and reformulate the economy into something they'd prefer it to look like. And you've seen those campaigns come with quite a lot of stick and, and not a lot of carrot. In, in real estate, for example, without giving local governments that rely on that a, a different way of raising funds, without giving households different opportunities for investment, they're still very real estate focused. And and in the case of something like stimulus, you know, of, of trying to do all these things without encouraging uh, additional spending power in the economy. And I, I wonder what you thought of that in terms of these these sort of interventions being sort of halfway done. It's it's like they've they've done the the difficult side and they haven't really given people much of an alternative in, in the things that they're pursuing.
2: Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because usually the criticism you hear is that they're just simply not tough enough that they don't see these things through they always blink. But part of the reason why they blink is exactly as you say that they're not actually, they haven't prepared the ground enough. They want to push uh, economic resources, people capital out of one sector but the new sector might not be ready yet to to receive them uh, or like you say, you know, perhaps they don't want people investing in property, but they haven't yet created attractive alternative assets. So I think there may be some truth to that. It may not be that the authorities are insufficiently tough. They're just insufficiently prepared.
1: Thank you very much, Simon. I think you sort of hit it on the nail there when you were talking about the uncertainty in particular with the policymaking. Um, I expect it's going to be a pretty fascinating year to follow all of these topics. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Oh, my pleasure. I've enjoyed it. And yes, I think the uncertainty keeps it interesting.
1: Our thanks, too, to Don Wineland, Angela Zhang and Juning. Thank you for listening to Money Talks. And while you're with us, please do take a moment to rate us or, better yet, leave us a review on your favourite podcast app. We read every single one and they help us to make better shows for you. You can also write to us at podcasts at economist.com. The producer is Amika Shortino-Nolan, Nico Raufast and Tom Birchall are our sound engineers, and the editor is Sandra Schmule. I'm Mike Bird, and in Hong Kong, this is The Economist.